And now I invite you to please turn with me online or on paper to Jeremiah chapter 20, uh, verses 7 through 13. It is uh, also in the digital order of worship that you downloaded. Today, uh, we're looking at this theme of public faith. Uh, The idea that uh, Word and Table has three core values, biblical formation, public faith, mercy, and justice. And so uh, for these, these three weeks, we're looking uh, one, uh, at one of those values each week. Last week, we looked at biblical formation and the idea that uh, an identity that is formed by Scripture is an identity that comes to the Lord with thanksgiving. Uh, this week, we're looking at uh, public faith as one of the guardrails that keeps us on the path toward being a church that models uh, and looks like uh, and lives out the image of Christ in the world. Uh, So we'll talk uh, about that more in a second. Let's hear now uh, Jeremiah chapter 20, verses 7 through 13, which is God's word, eternally true. O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I've become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. If I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. For I hear many whispering, terror is on every side. Denounce him. Let us denounce him. Say all my close friends watching for my fall. Perhaps he will be deceived. Then we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly shamed for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord of hosts, who tests the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you have I committed my cause. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the needy from the hand of evildoers. Please pray with me. And now, O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law and grow us thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. Amen. What is a public faith? Sometimes to define what something is, I try and look at the opposite of it to get a handle on it. So the opposite of a public faith might be a private philosophy, right? A, a private philosophy, it's, that would be a, like an inner motivation, unknown to the world, known only to yourself. And philosophy is different than faith. Philosophy is, is like uh, the blueprint of a bridge, a, a blueprint that says how much weight a bridge could hold if it were built. Faith, though, is like driving a Mack truck out onto the center of that bridge that's suspended over a chasm. That's faith. 
So when we say that one value at Word and Table PCA is public faith, we have this picture of of a crowd circled around, gathered to watch us as we drive a Mack truck out onto that bridge, who is Christ? Uh, Or do you hold your faith like it's some kind of private philosophy? Is it merely just a way you think things ought to go, Uh, But you don't need to let the world know what it is, or you don't need to let the world know that it actually is a motivating factor in your life. Public faith points to the bridge as you're walking across it, and as you're walking across it, public faith invites others to come along with you. Now, those are stark pictures and big contrasts. And uh, if you haven't noticed already in our service this morning, it's been, it's been full of stark pictures and big contrasts. And uh, I'm, I'm not trying to make it sound like every day you need to, as a Christian, get a bullhorn and go stand out in the middle of the street and, and shout about Jesus. Uh, but too often, Christians act like faith in Christ is, is a private philosophy, Now, one prophet, a prophet who is a study in contrast that we can learn from, is Jeremiah. He is the stark portrait of a prophet who had a public faith. He lived in tumultuous times, uh, and he is all at once yelling, and then in the next breath, he's weeping. He is not a prophet for the faint of heart. He is raw, and he is loud, and he is impolite. Now, I don't think we need to imitate his style but we do want to imitate his faith. Uh, There's nothing else for Jeremiah to depend on in the world except for the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts. Uh, So when we're looking for a faith that clings only to God, that clings only to Christ, Jeremiah is a really good place for us to go. Because when we know this prophet's story, we must have a public faith that points to Christ. So we're going to see the prophet's story of public faith when we look at four things. Wet clay, hard clay, Jeremiah himself, and God. Wet clay, hard clay, Jeremiah, and God. Okay, let's go. We'll start with uh, wet clay because we have to look at the background to these verses, uh, chapter 20, verses 7 through 13. If you're going to understand that, uh, let's, let's look back a little bit. We have to rewind the tape. In Jeremiah 18, uh, the prophet goes to the potter's house, and there he gets a really strange sermon illustration. He watches a potter making things on his wheel, and God says to him, Jeremiah, You need to tell my people, can I not do with you what this potter has done? Look at the potter. This guy here is working with clay, and I work with my people. And if the clay on the wheel doesn't mold right, then the potter mashes it back into a lump, and he creates something else, doesn't he? Can't I do that with you, especially if my people are doing evil? God goes on to say, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I purpose to do to it. Right? So when the clay on the wheel won't mold right, the potter is still going to make something useful. And he may have to rework the clay. Maybe he had in mind something that would be bigger but he ends up making something smaller. Maybe he had in mind something round like a bowl, but because the clay won't shape right, he ends up flattening it like a plate. He's going to make something useful, but it's not going to be what it first looked like. 
And Jeremiah goes on in chapter 18 to say, People of God, you aren't shaping up well in the potter's hands, and you're about to get reworked. He uses another image for this in chapter 18, verse 15. But my people have forgotten me. They make offerings to false gods. They made them stumble in their ways, in the ancient roads, and to walk into side roads, not the highway. Right? Worshiping the one true God is like the highway. You can think of a modern highway if you like, but don't forget that here when Jeremiah is writing, this is before we had modern highways. This is even before the Romans had come in and built their, uh, their incredible road system in the ancient world. Uh, a highway was just really a large, wide path, uh, the safest and flattest and quickest way to get from point A to point B. Right? Side roads in that time weren't like, uh, weren't like our modern exits. Side roads didn't have nice exit signs uh, or clover loops. Right? There was no sheets or wah-wah that you could pull off on and get gas and a cup of coffee. Uh, no rest areas with dog parks. Uh, you couldn't always see a side road clearly when you were on those ancient highways. And you didn't know, is that a side road? Or is that a side path that's going to lead me around a bend to where robbers are waiting to, to you know, mug me. Uh, you get in a side road and you think it might be a shortcut, but actually it's a place that could get you slowed down. False worship has taken God's people on that kind of a path. A side road that they thought was right, but it leads them somewhere else. Right? On the highway, remember, people are walking or pulling a cart or maybe riding an animal, but they aren't in cars with their windows rolled up. When you're on the highway, on this ancient highway, you're in the open air and you're, you're with other people. It's a public place where you get to know the people that you're going at the same speed with. Maybe you're talking about the destination that you're trying to get to together. Maybe you're watching out for each other and letting each other know that there are some side roads you don't want to take. It's a way to learn about each other as you travel together. That's the safety of the highway. Travel in a group with people going in the same general direction on a known path and be careful of those side roads. But God's people kept insisting on a side road. They wouldn't keep on the ancient road. They kept veering off from worshiping the one true God. Can you relate to this idea of veering off on a side road? Uh, I, I can. You click on one news headline and you find yourself clicking farther and farther down. And I have a personal rule. Uh, no digital reading in the morning before analog reading. Uh, right? I, I don't even look at the Bible on a device before I look at it uh, on the printed page uh, because I, I know that uh, there's a distraction waiting for me to pull me down. And I have to tell you that whenever I break my rule about digital reading and do digital reading before analog reading, uh, it, it ruins my morning because I invariably end up on some kind of side road. Now the question is, how bad can a side road get? Uh, well, let's go from looking at wet clay to looking at the hard clay that's going to be presented to us in Jeremiah 19 because side roads can get pretty bad. It surprised me earlier this week when I, I watched a video that someone suggested to me uh, with an opinion uh, that a person had that, that you know, wasn't necessarily my own, I didn't necessarily agree with, but I wanted to understand where the other person was coming from, so I watched this, I clicked in, and watched this video, and as I was kind of weighing what they said, and I was 
thinking, oh, I, I, I want to compare this to maybe another thought or opinion that's, that's uh, you know, different than, but it, given in a similar way. But when I, looked on, when I looked online and looked at the screen, all of a sudden, all the suggested videos were deeper and deeper on, on this one side, on this one side of the opinion. And, you know, the same thing happens to you. Think about, think about how easily we click down into the, uh, into the same opinions. That's what we call an echo chamber, right? That's where we get, uh, uh, we get an opinion feedback loop. All we start to hear are people confirming our own opinions uh, or people uh, telling us to fear the thing we already fear. They stoke up the fear uh, or they stoke up that opinion. And those things are side roads. Now, God gave Jeremiah another sermon illustration to tell the people they had gotten onto a side road. And that's in chapter 19, right? Uh, Now he says to Jeremiah, go and buy a potter's vessel. Go buy an earthenware flask, you know, a little little pottery pot. And, and then I want you to take some of the elders with you and some of the leaders and priests with you. And I want you to go to the gate, Jeremiah, and I want you to preach a sermon at the gate that opens up to the landscape of the city dump. That's basically where uh, Jeremiah goes. There you're going to tell the people, because you have forsaken me and profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods, whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known. And because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence. Let's stop right there. The blood of innocence? What were God's people doing? This answers the question about the side road. How bad was it? God's people had taken a side road in worship that caused them to mix biblical worship with the worship of Baal. And there was more than one God in this pantheon of Baal. But one of the ancient practices we know about was called passing through the fire, which was actually a form of child sacrifice where you burned your son on an altar in worship. How could you veer off from worshiping the God of the Bible to murdering innocent people? How could you think that murdering innocent people is an appropriate way to worship God. To make it clear to them, God says, I did not command or decree this, nor did it even come into my mind. It's like God is saying, that kind of evil is even beyond my ability to imagine. This is creativity used in the service of evil. So now, Jeremiah is giving this sermon at the city dump that overlooks the valley of the son of Hinnom. In Hebrew, Geben Hinnom, Geben Hinnom. Uh, in the later, years later, as it gets transliterated into Greek, Geben Hinnom becomes Gehenna. It gets shortened to Gehenna, which is the Greek word for hell. This place, this valley of Hinnom is going to become like hell. And he's standing there with this potter's earthenware flask in his hand saying all of this. And he rounds out the sermon by saying, this here place that you see behind me is not going to be called the Valley of the Son of Hinnom. It's going to be called the Valley of Slaughter. God basically says, this is where all of you are going to be buried. In fact, it's going to be full of dead bodies because there's not going to be room to bury anyone anymore. And you're going to be so hungry when your enemies come to this city and lay siege to it that you're actually going to end up eating each other. 
And then God says to Jeremiah, and I want you to finish the sermon, and I can't imagine doing this. I want you to finish the sermon by breaking this flask in front of them all. Throw it down and break it and say, so I will break this people and this city. They've become hard clay. Their hearts and minds hardened to the goodness of God, to the true worship of the one true God. And he's going to break them as he breaks a potter's earthenware flask. And once it's broken, it can never be mended. I'm bringing upon this city and upon all its towns the disaster that I've pronounced against it because they've stiffened their neck, refusing to hear my words. So Jeremiah's whole sermon is, you guys don't listen to God. It's not going to end well for you. But when Jeremiah gives his sermon, Jerusalem is in safety. There are no bad guys at the door. And the only guy saying all of this really harsh stuff is Jeremiah. He's terribly outnumbered. If you look in Jeremiah chapter 7, the nation thinks it's having some kind of religious revival uh, where the people uh, say uh, more than once, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. God's people think they're worshiping Him. And in Jeremiah 6.14, there's that famous verse about uh, the prophets healing the wounds of the people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Now, let's look at Jeremiah himself. So now we really come to our verses in Jeremiah 20. And we needed all that context just so these verses can make sense. Jeremiah is the outnumbered prophet. He's bringing bad news and he is the only one. So how popular do you think he is, right? Uh, People want to run him out of the church. That's how chapter 20 begins. Uh, Pashur, the priest, Pashur, whose name actually means freedom, was the chief officer in the temple. And he heard Jeremiah's sermon at the city dump. And so what does he do? As the chief officer of the temple, as the head of the religious complex, he takes Jeremiah and he beats him and he puts him in jail overnight. He puts him in some ancient form of the stocks that he's kind of twisted up and he's going to be uncomfortable all night long after he's beaten. He doesn't like the things Jeremiah is saying. After all, Jeremiah is soiling the reputation of this great temple complex. And this guy is the chief officer. Hey, Jeremiah, we have a religion in place and it's working for us. It keeps us popular with all the other religions around us. So don't spoil this for us, Jeremiah. So Pashur, whose name means freedom, lets Jeremiah out of jail the next morning. He says, how's that? And Jeremiah turns to him and he says, oh, your name isn't freedom. He says, your name is terror on every side. When the Babylonians come, you're going to live. And the false freedom you've been preaching is going to be revealed And instead of freedom, you're going to go into captivity, and that's where you'll die. Wow. So look, I told you, Jeremiah is not for the faint of heart. This is 52 chapters long. It's one of the longest uh, books in the Bible. And these chapters, 18, 19, and 20, are a pretty good day-in-the-life snapshot of the whole of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was called by God to have a public faith, to be a prophet, and to tell people all this very bad news. 
Now, the truth is, rage sells. Rage sells. And there are lots of people in the world who sound like Jeremiah. They talk a big talk. But the difference between the prophet of rage and the prophet of God is that no one prays and weeps like Jeremiah. Look at verses 7 and 8. Uh, He opens this prayer. He he begins to pray after all this happens to him. He opens the prayer. Lord, you deceived me and I fell for it. You're stronger and so you prevailed over me. Everyone's laughing at me. And Jeremiah prays. He talks about his message. He says, I'm shouting violence and destruction. Jeremiah hates his own preaching. The word of the Lord to him has become a reproach and a derision all day long. He's getting laughed at. But you see, prophets of rage love raging. Prophets of God weep when they have to rage. Jeremiah's nickname in history is the weeping prophet. He's not selling rage. He does not enjoy it. In fact, he really wants to quit his job in verse 9. In verse 9, he says, I I won't mention him. I'm going to refuse to speak in God's name anymore. Sounds easy enough, right? Just quit and walk out. But inside him, something burns and it must come out. The way he describes this burning fire in his bones sounds sounds more like nausea. It sounds more like Jeremiah is going to vomit. He's weary of holding it in. But he's not holding in something gross. He's not holding in something that makes him sick. He's holding in fire, a purifying fire. You know how we bend metal? We heat it up, red hot. A twisted iron rod can be made straight again if it's heated, red hot, and then it can be bent and stretched out. If you try and bend and stretch out an iron rod without heating it up, it'll just snap. But that intense heat makes it so that it can be untwisted. Jeremiah is holding in his bones a purifying fire of God's words. And while it'll heat up the people around him, he'll heat them up, and and they'll heat up so that they'll try and silence Jeremiah. His heat is actually the only thing that can get those people untwisted. Because they've twisted on to paths off of the highway. They've twisted the religion of God into a religion of politics that ends in the death of all kinds of innocent people. And even today, we can think of how, uh, how sometimes our religion gets mixed up in politics. Politics that says you have to care about these innocent people. Or some politics that say you have to care about these innocent people. And as if there are two different groups of innocent people we have to care about. And if you care about one, you can't care about the other. And that those things are pitted against each other. That's not true. A twisted religion. Here in this chapter, they no longer see the image of God in their fellow man. They no longer see the image of God in their children. They mix up what brings life, and they mix up what brings death. And God sends them someone with his burning words as a fire to heat them so that they can be made straight and not destroyed. But they won't have it. In verse 10, Jeremiah keeps praying. 
He says, I hear what they're saying about me, Lord. They're saying that I'm the terror on every side, not Mr. Freedom. Denounce him. Let us denounce him. Say all my close friends. Literally, that phrase close friends means men of my peace. Now, what does Jeremiah say about God, though? Uh, The people of the Old Testament church who should have been listening to Jeremiah, who should have been affirming the hearing of God's word from Jeremiah, are the very people who want to take revenge on Jeremiah. They've made Jeremiah the enemy, those who should have been for his peace. But they're in for a big surprise in verse 11. Jeremiah says, But the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Now, notice two things. First, but the Lord. I have a friend who has a, fa- a framed picture in his house that when you uh, stand five feet away from it, uh, in big red letters in the middle of the frame, it says, but. Uh, and, but when you walk up to it and look, uh, surrounding it in gray letters are all the places in Scripture that say, but God or but the Lord. It's a really important moment. These are the moments, but the Lord intervenes in our story. And second thing I want you to notice here when he says, uh, but the Lord is with me as a dread warrior, is the dread warrior. This is the only place in the Bible where the word for dread is used to describe God. All the other places, it's used to describe enemies. It's used to describe oppressors. So why is that significant? It's kind of like Jeremiah here is saying, look, Fellas, if I've become your enemy, then God has become your enemy too. Because God is the warrior by my side and he is going to cause you to have a sense of real dread. You stumble. You will not overcome me. Jeremiah may seem small, but he has a warrior standing next to him that nobody wants to mess with. And there are three results in verse 11 for Jeremiah's enemies. First, Jeremiah's enemies gain something, shame, eternal shame. They rejected the eternal word of God and they mixed it with their political and economic religion and that is shameful. And second, Jeremiah's enemies lose something. They lose success. They will not succeed It's not that they can't win against Jeremiah. Like I said, he's kind of small potatoes. And eventually Jeremiah is taken away by his enemies against his will. But they cannot win against God who flattens his own people. God flattens his own lump of clay. He flattens his own temple. And third, there's a time stamp on this. Forever. Their false worship caused them to slaughter innocent people just so they could keep status quo with the world around them. And that shame will follow them from this life into the next. Eternal dishonor never forgotten. The Lord is a dread warrior who can carry this out. Jeremiah knows that and he prays what might sound troubling to us at first in verse 12. O Lord of hosts, who tests the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you have I committed my cause. Look, Jeremiah knows that God tests his people. He knows that God sees our very deepest thoughts and motivations. And then he asks, let me see your vengeance upon them. Wow. Are we we supposed to follow Jeremiah in praying for vengeance? Well, 
If you were in exactly Jeremiah's circumstances, then you can pray exactly Jeremiah's prayer. But if you're like me, you need to alter it some. What I mean is Jeremiah was the only true prophet faithfully preaching God's word in a place and time. And that's not true for me. There are several faithful people faithfully preaching in my place and time. I'm not the only one. And my enemies aren't lying about me and throwing me in jail. So if I want to pray like Jeremiah, I need to alter my prayer accordingly. The closer your circumstances are to Jeremiah, the more like, uh, the more like him you can pray. Jeremiah closes this part of his prayer in verse 13 by saying, Sing to the Lord. He has delivered my life. Even in Jeremiah's lowest place, he can sing praise. And that's one more way that you can tell that Jeremiah is a true prophet and not a prophet of rage who gets off on vengeance. He can celebrate God even in his lowest circumstances. He doesn't celebrate himself. He doesn't celebrate a cause. He celebrates a person, the Lord. In your lowest place, can you still say, sing to the Lord, praise the Lord. We talked last week about our need for an identity that has thanksgiving at its base. Here we see Jeremiah living that out. Of course, if you read the rest of chapter 20, uh, Jeremiah goes back to weeping in the next verse. He even curses the day he was born. But look, Jeremiah had it rough. And Jeremiah's book is a companion piece to anyone who loves God and lives in hard times. If you only see Jeremiah weeping, you'll mistake him for a weakling. If you only see Jeremiah angry, you'll mistake him for a prophet of rage. But if you are brave enough to see both of those things and hold them together then you'll be able to see how Jeremiah points to the Savior. Jesus was rejected by the people who should have been men of his peace. He was rejected by both the religious system of his day, and he was rejected by one of the 12 individuals he had chosen to befriend and share his life among them. Jesus had words of burning fire for the people of God. And Jesus, too, had odd sermon illustrations like flipping over tables and brandishing a whip. And Jesus wept. He was the one who said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh, how I have longed to gather you together. And the Lord was with Jesus as a dread warrior, but in a different way. On the cross, the vengeance of God as a dread warrior was poured out on Jesus. The dread warrior who should have killed us instead turned on Jesus, Jesus, who was the ultimate prophet who spoke God's word. Jeremiah thought he had been deceived into being a prophet, but Jesus knew what his own prophetic mission was. Jeremiah wanted to quit his job and wept, but Jesus set his face to finish his job, and for the joy that was set before him upon its completion, he endured the weeping of the cross. Because Jesus took our punishment on himself as an innocent sufferer. And because he did that, there's no shame left for us to endure. When we mix our religion with politics and economics, when we're part of the death of innocence, there is one who can heat us up with his words and save us rather than melt us. 
There is one who has taken vengeance on our sins, but instead of eternal shame, he will give us his eternal honor. And it's to him that we commit our cause. When you give your life to Christ and you're united to him by faith, he will test your heart and mind. He will cleanse you. He will give us eternal success until the church of Christ has a public faith that looks less like prophets of rage and more like Christ himself, the prophet of God. Let's pray. Lord God, who tests the righteous, who sees the heart and mind, heat us up with your words and straighten out the many crooked ways in us that we may walk on the highway that leads to you, safe from the side roads that lead to death. For we've committed our lives to you for safekeeping in the Son by the power of the Spirit. Amen.